Welcome to the Perfect Ingredient Podcast with your hosts, Jason Tipp from Perfect Company and Anton Nicholas from ICR. Welcome to the Perfect Ingredient Podcast. We're the conversation you need for anyone obsessed with restaurant operations, the challenges operators face, and the missing ingredients they need to solve them. I'm your host, Jason Tipp from Perfect Company, and here with me is my good friend, Anton Nicholas from ICR. How are you doing today, Anton? I'm good, Jason. Thanks for having me. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day here in Portland. Um, I'm hoping it's a beautiful day for you there. I don't know. Where, where are you today? I'm in Providence, Rhode Island, actually. And I'm, I'm gathering that it's not 117 degrees out there like it was a couple of weeks ago. It, it's not. It, we've gotten past that. That was a few weeks ago. It's, uh, it's gotten to be beautiful sum, summer weather here. We had, a, we had a beautiful weekend. Good to hear it. I, I mean, that, uh, that stretch for everyone on the West Coast is pretty brutal as far as I could so. Yeah, unfortunately, there still are fires because it is, you know, it's summer and it's dry. Um, and we're, we're luckily, they're not really anywhere near Portland. But you know, we, we, we are thinking about the people who are affected by those this year and every year. But let's, let's dive in. Uh, just for, for those of you who have not listened to our podcast before, we talk about the intersection of restaurant operations and technology. Um, we encourage you to write a review on Apple Podcasts. That would, if you like what you hear, that would be awesome. You can email us at perfectpod, all one word, at perfectco.com if you want to tell us um, about a topic of interest or give us some feedback. Uh, we'll keep the positive feedback. We will delete the negative <laughs> uh, input. And uh, I don't know. Let's uh, let's uh, let's get into the kitchen. Let's have this conversation, Anton. What do you think? Happy to. Happy for the negative feedback too. Just not willing to post it necessarily. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I've never had to manage a Yelp review. I don't really want to get into that. <laughs> uh, so on the menu this week, what I've been thinking about, Anton, is, uh, and, and people have different opinions on this, but I read this Wall Street Journal article recently about restaurant and bar workers not returning to those careers that people um, went on furlough last year. They picked up jobs with Amazon or other industries that were actually hiring last year. You know, I, I know there's some, I know there's some noise out there in the world about it being the government subsidies keeping people from returning to work. But this Wall Street Journal article says, you know, there's a lot of people who have now discovered. Um, that there's another way to make a good, a decent living and, you know, that they're not coming back to restaurants and bars. And, you know, let's yeah. face it, at the end of the yeah. day, a lot of restaurant jobs can be challenging. It shouldn't be surprising, especially after COVID, um, that folks might find better paying jobs. I mean, I started out in the industry as a teenager and, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of folks that started out in the industry. That's what they did. They kept doing the same thing. They might've switched jobs, but they never really stepped back and took a look at what they were doing and thought about making a career change. And then they were forced to. And so now the industry, you know, whether that people start coming back or fully, you know, I don't think they're ever fully going to come back. And so the question is, what, how does the industry adjust to that? What, what happens if they're dealing with a smaller labor, labor pool? You know, what's going to happen? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's no question that, that there's some, percentage and hopefully it's a smaller percentage of uh of former restaurant workers aren't going to come back i know from my experience it was not like yours i my first real job in the industry was to be a, a prep cook 
I lasted three days and I never went back into the industry again. So, I mean, I, I can see why, you know, people will move on. I mean, I think, I think for the actual brands themselves and the restaurants themselves, it becomes this quandary between how do they manage their, how do they manage their capacity and the return to more normalcy in that regard with a reduced labor force? Um, and without question, you know, we've talked about it before, but it seems to me that there's, there's going to be different levers to pull and technology is going to be a critical one to figure out how to, you know, help create efficiencies within the back of the house and of course, in, in the front of the house. And so I think that'll play a major role. I think how the industry adapts to, you know, one thing you said, which I think was interesting is that people can go find other jobs that, you know, may or may not be better than the restaurant industry, but are sort of equivalent. And the industry is going to have to adapt and figure out how to create better jobs for folks. They're still going to be demanding. They're still going to be physical in many ways. And, grind, and it's a grind in the restaurant industry, as we all know. But the industry itself can adapt and, you know, can create better pay scales and uh, figure out ways to alleviate some of the, the burden on the worker. And I think technology plays a role in that as well. And I think that's one of the things that's going to be interesting about um, hopefully when we talk to, to our guests today is uh, how they're applying technology in their space. Yeah, I think it's um, it, it is going to be interesting to see how technology plays a role. I, I, you know, there's been a lot of buzz in the industry about robotics, and I guess we can all envision a day when that, uh, you know, robotics are the solution. But I think you know, it's a hospitality industry. There are going to be bodies that are um, taking care of other people in this industry for a long time. And I, I was just I wasn't at Mer Mertech, but I saw some of the reports of you know, kind of synopses of speakers yeah. from that event. Um, and, and it sounds like, you know, even uh, experts in the field are a bit mixed on the likelihood that ro robots or drones are going to have much impact in the short term. And so it's going to be other technology solutions. Like you mentioned, there are some front of house solutions. Yeah. You know, you don't, you could maybe have a little less reliance on servers because now you can scan a barcode at your table and order what you want to order. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the kitchen itself, back of house, um, to, to make labor more productive, make jobs a little bit easier and, and um, streamline things a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's always the case in most industries where you go to these conferences and they talk about the incredible opportunity that exists for technology application within the industry. And it's a little bit pie in the sky, right? Um, there are plenty of practical solutions that apply to the restaurant industry that, um, that people can begin implementing immediately that are going to help. And you, you, you named one, for example, where you can go to the barcode and order your food and then someone just brings it out, right? It gets prepped by someone else and brings it out. I mean, I certainly believe that um, what we're hearing out of Mertex seems pretty aspirational. But then again, you know, if you told me, you know, 10 years ago, there would be this thing called an app where you could order your food from any of the restaurants you wanted to come from and it would show up, you know, on your doorstep. Um, I wouldn't believe that necessarily either. Uh, and that one seems so easy now, right? So I do think one thing as you as we talk about the application of technology, we talk about labor, you know, I am definitely a believer like you in the hospitality industry, always having people involved in it. I think it's just going to be a really um, important part of that sort of emotional connection that you have to restaurants. You, there's food, there's ambiance, and there's staff and people and how you're treated and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we're going to have uh, on with us later today, Jim Bayless, who is 
for folks who know him in the industry, he's an operator's operator. So it'll be interesting to get his take um, on some of this as well. There's another there's another topic that occurred to me. Um, I saw last week that um, you know, along with COVID, COVID has changed the industry in so many ways that you know brands were launching. Uh, brick and mortar brands were launching virtual brands to just to try to pick up additional transactions, you know, sort of on the backs of all of the off-premise ordering going on and the, the emergence of ghost kitchens. And so you had Chili's, Dickie's, Ruby Tuesday. I mean, there's a whole laundry list of uh, established brands that launched second brands. Um, and now I'm reading how they're, some of them are now providing dine-in in their existing concept for this virtual brand or curbside in addition to delivery only they you know they started out delivery only and now they're sort of bringing them into the restaurant and you know sometimes they're very different concepts it's it's all of a sudden you know i don't think i don't think anybody thought any of the multi-brand executions we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years or wherever home runs i mean we certainly haven't seen so many of them that you would think that they were home runs. Um, and so now I'm, this is kind of interest, interesting, kind of backing into that, that multi-branded uh, yeah. location. Again, I just wonder how that kind of with all of this, right. Uh, if you're already stretched on labor, how does that work? And you know, how does it work for the consumer? Well, I mean, I think the thinking obvi- is obvious, right. It's like, how do you maximize your, your capacity to, to generate as much, revenue as you can within the footprint that you do have. And so to the extent that you've had success with a secondary brand, you want to, and you've created some loyalty, you want to, you want to keep it going. Right. Um, from a consumer standpoint, it's probably great. If you, if you, if you love the brand, now you have an opportunity to continue to experience it, whether it be, you know, through delivery curbside, or maybe even in some cases in the house, I think the problem becomes on the operational side at some point, it's going to be confusing for folks. I think it's going to be difficult to manage the influx, depending on you know how it throws off the balance. Whether you know in terms of the way you allocate kitchen and resources towards one brand versus the other, and so on and so forth. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Um, again, it looks smart on paper to me, but I wonder about the practical application. Is how is you know really what it boils down to, and and we'll see. Well, listen. Um... That's enough of just you and me uh, brainstorming and chatting our uh, 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 chatting about what we think is interesting. Why don't we bring in our guest, uh, Jim Bayless, and we'll uh, we'll get down to some brass tacks. Our guest today is Jim Bayless, who is the CEO of Sizzling Platter, which is a 500 plus unit multi-branded franchisee business operating in two countries. Jim also is a managing director and heads up the strategic operations group for Capital Spring. You probably recognize that name, which is a 2.5 billion plus restaurant investment company. As a lifelong operator, Jim has been the CEO of more than 15 different restaurant companies over his career in the space. And I've known Jim for a couple of years. Um, in fact, I think Anton, you introduced me to, to Jim a number years ago at Restaurant Leadership Conference, uh, apart from all of his credentials, uh, he's a really generous and friendly and nice guy in the industry. And it's an industry full of those kinds of folks. But Jim is certainly, at least for me, at the top of that list. And I think Anton is as well for you. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to have you here, Jim. It's good to see you. Thanks, guys. So Jim, what we always like to do is start out off, um, you know, sort of little bit about your background. Tell tell us and the folks that hopefully are listening uh, a little bit about your background. 15 different restaurant companies over your career. Uh, you must have started out as a, an eight-year-old or something. 
to, to be able to fit all of that in. So, uh, so, you know, how'd you get your start? What's it been like? I mean, I started in high school, like a lot of others, you know, first job, restaurant space, started off uh, in the dish pit, uh, moved up to busboy, worked in uh, a few different fast casuals, uh, an ice cream shop in New York City, where you mixed in uh, the toppings like a Cold Stone, did some work and some fine dining. And then in college, started a, a little catering company, uh, which was mostly around um, concerts and, and other types of venues and did that and took a, a brief break break for a year or so post-college, but right back into it um, and then started an advisory group, which uh, led to a lot of those CEO engagements, which were turnaround situations and then um, joined Capital Spring a while ago, I think in 2014 and then um, Sizzling Platter a couple of years ago. Um, and, you know, just really a, a lifer in the restaurant space. Yeah. So it's interesting. I was having a conversation with um, some other folks in the industry earlier today and kind of reflecting on your comment, a lifer in the restaurant space. I've been in the, re- I started out as a teenager in restaurants and did a little bit of retail and um, have basically been in the industry since. And I, you know, what kind of affliction do we have, Jim? Why is it, what, what is it about the restaurant industry that kind of sucked you in and kept you in? Um, you know, I've always liked food and, uh, I guess working at it and, you know, in high school, I always saw a lot of opportunities to improve the businesses that I was operating in and was always suggesting things to the ownership teams. And, you know, it just seemed like something where I had a lot of success. And like I said, I took, I took a break and actually worked in the movie business, um, for just about two years, a little, little under two years, um, which I, you know, was probably a, a way to make me appreciate the restaurant business even more because I was so miserable. Yeah, you know, there's just something about the hospitality business, making people feel good, you know, the experiences they're looking for, whether they're just looking for something to eat and fill their belly or, you know, truly an experience in a restaurant, you know, both ways. It just seems very fulfilling and something that's been around for so many years and will continue to be around for years to come, despite, you know, its evolution to off-premise and third-party delivery and all the other things. People will always be going out to eat. And so, uh, you know, it's just, it's, you know... Uh, part of our DNA and uh, something I've always enjoyed being a part of. Did you, did you ever think you would see as challenging uh, 12 to 18 months as perhaps you've seen uh, in the industry uh, over the last 12 to 18 months with COVID and also now, you know, what does that mean for you as you look at the Delta variant and things that are happening? It's all timely conversation. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could say I saw the original <laughs> pandemic coming around the corner, but uh you know, uh, you know, I think speaking on behalf of everybody, you know, nobody's saying anything like this. It's been an extremely, extremely challenging time. You know, both the businesses that we're in that have done extremely well. You know, we have a couple of brands that we're in at Sizzling that, you know, had record numbers, uh, record sales through the pandemic. And that created its own challenges. You know, as we had jump teams that were handling uh, cases as they broke out at stores that we didn't want to close and, you know, navigating through infections as you know as well as all the new sanitation policies and social distancing and managing guests and and you know a lot of um you know their their complaints about uh dining out and what their expectations were you know fast forward through you know the vaccines and and the staffing issues that we've been experiencing in the last four months or so uh to today you know which this may um mark the date in which this is was recorded but you know to see what happened in the stock market today as a result of 
you know, people's feelings around the Delta variant and how quickly it's spreading and, you know, Los Angeles County's reaction to it with the new mask mandate. You know, this is a very challenging environment. You know, uh, you can never be prepared for, you know, the types of things that were being thrown at us right now. And, and even if we were prepared, you know, the staffing challenge alone is, is something that, you know, it's just, you know, whether we knew it was coming or not, it's just something that, that has to be dealt with and is extremely difficult. I mean, I just saw, you know, one restaurant company is offering free round-trip tickets to any general managers more than 90 days. I saw, you guys may have seen it too, the Jersey Mike uh, hiring bonus of $10,000 for an assistant manager in Northern California. You know, we've just seen uh, lots of different incentives out there. I mean, it's just crazy. And notwithstanding the incentives, it's still very difficult to hire people. And then, you know, the general manager is so crucial to the success of the business. And so hiring the right people, uh, it's been really difficult. Uh, one thing I would say is in those states where um, they have discontinued some of the uh, subsidy benefits, we have seen about, you know, anywhere from a 40 to 50% increase in applications. So there does seem to be a correlation between the subsidies and, and, and applications, which, you know, would lead to a positive time for whatever it is, September 6th. I mean, I forget when they expire or something like that. So do you think, Jim, that um, I, I know I've talked to some folks out there who think that, well, there might be, as you just said, as those subsidies abate, there might be some return to the workforce. But th then in a lot of instances, folks have decided they don't want to be part of the restaurant workforce. They they found last year or earlier this year, they found, you know, an Amazon job, Walgreens. There's lots of places where uh, non-restaurant jobs where they've been hiring, maybe at better wages, maybe at better schedules, maybe, you know, better conditions, whatever the, the case may be. Um, and that there's this, you know, sort of suspicion that, uh, that we're never going to get everybody back into the industry we've had. Yeah, I mean, I hope you're wrong, <laughs> but uh, there's certainly been a school of thought around that. And, you know, look, I mean, it's a tough industry. I mean, even within the industry, it's always amazing. You know, you look at, you know, just the various responsibilities. I mean, you can be a server and, you know, work very hard for, you know, a couple of hours during peak period and make a lot of money. You can be, you know, uh, a cook and, you know, doing prep cook work and then working the line, you know, and that has, you know, some of its, its uh, challenges. And then you can be, you know, in fast food, you know, for example, in fried chicken that could be, you know, very, you know, physically demanding. And, you know, there's, there's lots of different um, positions within our space and, you know, each can affect you different ways. I mean, you might have somebody that says, wow, I can make a lot of money very quickly. And then others that might say, this is really hard work for what I'm getting paid you know, is it really worth it? And so I think, you know, what what we're going to see with respect to, you know, the, the point that you just made is I think it's going to impact different positions differently. Um, I do think that, you know, the back of the house um, is probably going to struggle more. And then managerial, where they're working, you know, more hours, more days, at least the, ex at least the expectation of it, you know, is going to be something where they're going to look at some of the other jobs that you mentioned, and they're going to say to themselves, you know, even if I make a little less, my quality of life is going to be much better. So I do think it's going to impact the industry, and I think it's going to be, you know, somewhat position-specific. Um, but, you know, hopefully there's enough people out there that need jobs, and um, we'll be able to staff our restaurants. You know, the counterpoint is, you know, some percent of restaurants are closing permanently, and so, you know, fewer locations, you know, may necessitate fewer employees overall. I did read a statistic today that Limited Serve has allegedly rehired something like 87% of their workforce and full serve was, I think, in the 90s. So, you know, it seems like it's coming back a little bit, uh, but 
you know, we'll see how many people stay out of the space entirely. So, so if you think if 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 uh, if it's even partially true that there might be a sea change here in terms of, you know, whether it's for a sector or or a particular um, you know segment of the industry like QSR, using it as an example, where it, you know I think the work tends to be a little bit more challenging to your point and. The, the consumer orders are there. Are there are there solutions that you th- you think about as you you think about the businesses you're in or the the folks you know out there? And you know, again, we're a, we're sort of we're interested in how technology can empower and, and solve problems and for operators is as you as you think about how you might have to offset. And I I don't think we're ready for robots yet. How you're going to offset? Uh, that labor and and still deliver the same amount of food. Are there solutions that you're thinking about uh, or that you, you know, envision? I mean, you know, technology is going to continue to play a a better role. So for example, you know, even some of the AI technology and and the back office platforms is becoming more accurate with respect to par levels. And so, you know, as you're preparing food uh, for the volumes and the, you know, the expected volumes that day, the next day and the day after, you know, and you can prepare, prepare less food uh, and there's less waste, you know, that's going to reduce the amount of workforce hours ultimately you need. You know, there's, there is technology, you know, one area that I think is inevitable that we're going to see is, you know, voice technology in the drive-through, you know, where, um, and there's a couple of platforms out there that, you know, we've looked at that, you know, are very, very fluid. I mean, one of them in particular doesn't even sound like, uh, you know, you're, you're speaking to a computer. I think we'll definitely see that that could eliminate, you know, some labor in the drive-through, especially labor. You know, that's the hardest position in the QSR is the person that's managing that drive-through, and they could be listening in and assembling the food while the order is being placed over, you know, the uh, the speaker. Um, so, you know, there there are definitely going to be technologies that will ease some of the burden and you know take away some of the labor, um, and then also make people's lives better. I mean, you know, even you know some of the rewards programs that are out there. You guys pro- probably have seen these where you know, you run employee competitions and there's apps now that manage uh, the rewards associated with it and they can choose the rewards, you know, and, you know, what's particularly interesting and I think speaks to the workforce that's out there right now is um, what we've seen in those programs is the amount of employees or team members that actually donate those rewards to charities versus opting in for the Amazon gift card or whatever. So, you know, there there's technologies that do things from make the job a little, maybe a little bit more fulfilling to, you know, those that ease some of the stress of the position to those that eliminate labor entirely. And, you know, that's just speaking from the team member's perspective. Obviously, you know, as the operator's perspective or the manager's perspective, there's, you know, more and more technology out there that's, you know, shaving off hours here and there um, to try to make, uh, you know, overall the, re- the restaurant operate more efficiently and, and with less labor. Hey, Jim, sticking with the technology thing, but but thinking about it in the context of your role at, at Sizzling Platter, where you have multiple brands, uh, you know, franchisee, right? How, how are you unearthing technology that works uh, for you guys? Are, is it is Do you have test pilots going on in, in different brands that you can then take and apply to the other brands? Um, what is the relationship also within that with uh, the companies and the brands themselves in terms of any technology they're unearthing and introducing you to? Because we're the franchisee within those brands, we can't speak specifically about, you know, technologies that we, you know, may be testing or interested in or pursuing. 
but because we are, you know, typically a, a larger franchisee in their system, um, a little bit more, you know, sophisticated in some cases, uh, we have very good relationships with the brands that we're in. And so to the extent that, you know, we see a technology that we think would be applicable, we share that, you know, with the brand, we offer to test it up. In other cases, you know, they reach out to us and say, hey, we're thinking about this technology. What are your thoughts? Would you be interested in testing it? You know, one of the brands just approached us last week about, you know, testing something that they they had heard was very successful uh, with another franchisor, you know, what we're trying to do is, is just be a good partner in that situation and, and try to test and, you know, really look very closely at pre-post-netic control so that we understand truly what the impact of the technology is and that we're deriving the benefit from it to the extent that, you know, it's really quantifiable there. Um, but, you know, it's that's exactly how it works on town. You know, they, they come to us and, and you know, we, we try to test it. We always offer up that we're willing to do the tests. You know, it's a bit of a hobby of mine nonetheless. So, you know, it's always fun to try to test some of the stuff. Well, it speaks to that partnership relationship that you're talking about, because, I mean, I'm, I'm sure when you've got challenges of a pandemic and when you've got labor issues within your system and things like that, it, it creates, you know, a measure of, of tension, I'm sure, as well. So the idea that you guys are working together to solve the problems must be a lift for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, again, you know, uh, I don't know how some of the other larger, what some of the other larger franchisee, I mean, I know, you know, there was one uh you know, recently defiled that didn't have a good relationship with their, their, you know, brand partners, but we, we really strive to be good, you know, good brand partners, adhere to brand standards, um, you know, really try to, to do what they say and, and, you know, be exemplary franchisees within their systems. And, you know, part of that is, is being their partners in some of these tests and being very transparent and then hopefully bringing an analysis to the table that, you know, benefits them as well to the extent that we can show them, you know, they're not doing all the analysis. We're doing some of the analysis ourselves. And, you know, so hopefully we can be good partners and, and you know, really get to the right answers as we're testing some of this technology, uh, which is the key to it ultimately, right? Does it work? Does it not work? Is it beneficial to this particular brand or system or operation? Yeah. So, so that's interesting. So Jim, kind of looking back over the history of your career, not so much. I mean, we were talking about COVID and, and the changes, the sort of more short-term changes in the industry, but even thinking back in the long view in your career, can you can you think of a particularly sticky, uh, maybe it was in a turnaround situation or in the sizzling platter business or, or other, a particularly sticky operational problem and a technology solution that maybe you found or maybe the brand recommended that actually did hit the, you know, it was the right hammer for the, for the nail that need to be hit and, um, actually did result in a step change in, in the, in the business and, and the, uh, addressing the operational challenge. I would say, you know, some of the, you know, some of the cubbies that recently through COVID, uh, the, you know, the, the sort of cubby system where, you know, instead of having an open shelf, you know, you have uh, a locker where the food's placed into the locker, you know, from the kitchen and the consumer comes in and scans a code on their phone or enters a code on a keypad and, and you know, the locker then opens and, you know, it's sort of a touchless um, carry-out pickup. I think, you know, that's something that's solved for a lot in our space. I think we'll see more of that, not just across the restaurant industry, but across, you know, retail and, you know, in other sectors as well, you know, people that, may order products and, you know, rather than having curbside and dealing with, you know, some of the, the challenges around the communication points on curbside, you know, just walking in and, and, 
you know, waving your phone and being able to pick up your product and not confusing it with others or taking somebody else's items or, you know, checking the names on it to make sure whose is whose. You know, I think that's one. You know, I think um, in the QSR space, you know, historically, uh, the car measurement system has been something that would have to be installed in concrete, you know, and you drive over it. And there's been some much better technology about identifying the cars in other ways because, you know, those drive-through times are something that we watch so closely in QSR. You know, that Harvard study, whatever it is, one car through a drive-through can be, I don't know, $11,000 in sales or forget what it is or profit. So, you know, that's an area of focus that, you know, there's been a lot of technology lately that's improved and helped uh, drive those drive-through speeds, measure them, and, you know, assess where the choke points are and, you know, some of the advanced ordering systems. And, you know, and then, I mean, ultimately, I, I view what's going to happen, as I said earlier, and specifically with drive-throughs, you know, is going to be where, you know, you pull up and there's going to be, you know, a Siri-type voice ordering system that, you know, you interact with a computer and uh, probably recognizes your face, you use your face to pay, probably recognized it from a loyalty standpoint, you know, populates an order that you may have ordered previously. Um, it uses AI to suggest a sell to say, oh, you know, all the people that order this particular type of burger meal tend to have ordered this add-on or this dessert or upsize to this drink. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, very specific AI technology around ordering. And, you know, we're starting to see that. And so it's not something necessarily I've seen in the past, but something I think is going to play into the future. But those were some of the examples of some stuff I have seen in the past that I think are sticky. When you when you talk about the future restaurant, I think the drive-through example is a really cool one, right? Uh, what do you think is the balancing act between, between the technology-based and the AI-based mechanics versus, uh, you know, having folks in the restaurant? And, and obviously, you know, you, you talk about how the efficiency of, of it helps with the labor problem, but ultimately you're always going to need people in the restaurant, right? Yeah. I mean, there is a White Castle, I think, in New York that's operating currently with one person and the rest are robotics. Um, so, I, you know, I think uh, there's no question we're going to move to many fewer people in the restaurant, but I agree there always will need to be a person there. You know, there, there are, to, to use Jason's phrase, there are two schools of thought. You know, we are in the hospitality business and, you know, there's a lot of uh, companies out there that believe that, you know, we really need the hospitality component. I'm a little bit more on the side of, you know, somebody coming into fast food, typically QSR, you know, it's really about getting the food and getting out fast or getting their food fast, eating it and going less about, you know, looking for an interaction with somebody. So, you know, I'm just one person, but I'm of the belief that, um, migration to kiosks, ordering on your off your your phone, really not needing the interaction for that segment. I think as you get into other segments where, you know, there may be you know more you know, premium versions of the segment, whether it be burger, you know, whatever. I think the hospitality piece could play a bigger role. But I think, you know, for QSR, it it um, it's less so. I think, you know, some of the phone ordering that's happening. You know, people are very custom to their QR codes now. And ordering, you know, tapping on the table and ordering in full service restaurants, you know, and I think people are just becoming more accustomed to it. But I do think having, you know, in those situations, a server come over and having some interaction, you know, having an experience, I think uh, is still very important in those situations. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, as you were talking about that, Jim, it struck me, uh, there's a topic that Anton and I spoke about a little bit earlier um, that I think kind of relates to that the hospitality, the in-person aspect of this. And I think um, you 
in your operations may have sort of a firsthand view of some of this, you know, and I don't, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of ghost kitchens and there's a whole discussion on ghost kitchens and ghost brands and all of that. But I think one of the interesting things that um, we've seen very recently is some of the brands that launched ghost brands, I guess, virtual brands during COVID a year ago, nine months ago, um, you know, Ruby Tuesday, you see Chili's doing that, did this, uh, Wingstop did it. There's, you know, a long list of, of brands that did that have, have been operating those virtual brands and now are starting to bring those virtual brands into their bricks and mortar. And now adding that, that second menu onto their existing menu. And, um, it strikes me that, a year ago when I might've been struggling, I had, I had labor, you know, I, I had capacity and I was looking to drive top line sales. It made sense to, you know, stretch my team and do what I could do. But now I'm wondering as the industry is coming back, how that affects an operation. Now, now I'm, I'm running two restaurants in one kitchen. I, it, you know, I'm just curious about that. I'm interested in your view because you know, at that point, it is about hospitality. I've got consumers coming back into my restaurants as well, right? Yeah, I mean, you're right. Um, that creates a, a lot of challenges, and and you know, the complexities evolve as the dine-in traffic picks back up. Um, so, you know, a lot of it's going to depend on how much of a deviation from the core menu the ghost kitchen represents, right? You know, if it's you know, chilies and they're making wings anyway, but, you know, now it's, you know, a factor of a hundred relative to what they did for their dine-in business, you know, then it might be less impactful. And, you know, further, you know, it's, it's very volume specific. I mean, if you have, you know, a store, I mean, it's just like manufacturing, right? If you have capacity and, you know, you can leverage whatever you have in the restaurant to maximize the capacity, you know, you will hit that inflection point where, you know, you're starting to, you know, negatively impact the dine-in experience and hopefully, you know, the, the, the managers are aware of that and raise their hands. But, you know, I think, you know, for some of the heritage brands, you know, this could be the lifeline that they were looking for. You know, they wanted to move into, you know, a smaller footprint, lower labor, better unit economics, and, you know, they were able to prove it out in a ghost kitchen model. And now they're flipping it to brick and mortar and saying, you know, geez, do I really need, you know, this you know, five, 6,000 square foot full service, you know, you know, $2.4 million build out property when, you know, people are coming for the food and those that want to just come for the food and not the experience I can offer them this and Hey, franchisee, the unit economics on this and the cash on cash returns and ROIs are significantly better. So, you know, where they may have struggled to, you know, develop new stores and grow these brands and grow the underlying value, whether it's their stock value or their equity value, you know, if they're you know, privately held, you know, it, it really could be the lifeline that they were looking for. But again, to your point, you, you could hit that sort of inflection where, you know, you're now, you know, accommodating more of the ghost kitchen guest and, you know, at the expense of the dine-in guest, and then you start losing the dine-in guest. And, you know, here you have this 5,000 square foot limited serve ghost kitchen, which doesn't make economic sense either. So, you know, it really can go both ways. You just have to be careful and really make sure that your teams raise their hand, you know, in, in, and are honest with you about, you know, when they might hit those capacity limits. Well, cool. Thanks, Jim. I, you know, I, I, on behalf of myself, and I'm, I'm sure Anton would agree with me, I get smarter every time I chat with you, and I really enjoy it. 
I really enjoy it. I don't believe so that. Hard for, that. Me, hard for me not to. Don't worry, Jim. But but we get to <laughs> we, we now get to the point of our our conversation where we get to go a little uh, off a little off the restaurant topic where we just want to learn a little bit more about what makes you tick and how you think. And we tend to end each of these interviews with the same set of four questions just to, you know, to try to, to look under the hood a little bit. We call it the perfect ingredient for foundational questions. And, uh, and so we're going to, we're going to dive into, if you're going to, you're such a great sport, we're going to dive into that right now. Okay. So Jim, I'm going to ask the first one and, and I'm going to, Ask the first question and then reserve the right to ask you a quick follow-up of interest. Um, but what is your secret guilty pleasure food or meal? Guilty pleasure food or meal. You know, I'd have to say my, my favorite restaurant, my favorite eating uh, experience, although the experience leaves a little bit to, to be desired, is uh, there's a small Chinese restaurant in New York City in Chinatown. It's actually below ground called Hop Key. Uh, on Mott Street, toward the end of Mott Street. Actually, it was one of the few restaurants Anthony Bourdain visited in New York on his TV show, um, and I have not seen his documentary, although I look forward to it. And, you know, it's it's not your run-of-the-mill Chinese restaurant, you know, that you order lo mein or dumplings. It's um, you order things like snails and razor clams and, and other things. And, you know, whenever I go to New York, that's my first stop. I love it. Cash only. You know, there's <laughs> leaves a little bit to be desired as far as uh, decor, um, but the, it's it's my favorite food in the whole world. Makes makes the experience even better. So let me ask you my my follow up question, which is very personal to you, based on uh, you know as a restaurant owner yourself. Talk to me about the relationship between pizza and sushi. <laughs> very unique relationship uh, with an unintended relationship. There was a. Uh, you know, a, a sushi place next door that was looking for a spot and I had some extra space. And so they came in and, uh, yeah, you know, it, it was, as I said, very unintended, but it's interesting how it's evolved. And, um, you know, it, it does eliminate a veto vote. You know, a lot of the parents come in and, and opt for the sushi and uh, the kids can get pizza and uh, everybody's happy. But uh, it's very unique. Thankfully, it's worked out, but not something that I went into initially, thinking that those would be two two foods that would be complementary to each other for sure. We'll talk about a differentiated concept. Yeah, really, <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, not a lot of those out there. Should be easy to get the uh, the patent, not the patent, but the trade name. Exactly. Uh, so, other than your own company, if you were, what other brand or company? Uh, do you admire a great deal? Would you, you know, think of as aspirational if, you know, you could, if you could do what they're doing, what, what company would that be? Uh, you know, there's so many that I've seen that I really appreciate, you know, there's, there's a, a group in Ohio that's um, growing their own food on their roofs and, and at a kitchen um, in the winter, you know, indoors and, and trying to produce as much of their own food as possible. Super interesting, tied to farms, own some of the farms. There's, you know, pals that has invented, you know, really mentored training programs at the end of the day. And, you know, this is very, you know, unoriginal, but, you know, I'd have to say Chick-fil-A and, you know, really what I appreciate about what they've done is they've given operators, just like when I started out in the industry, you know, the opportunity to have careers that are so much more meaningful than being a general manager, you know, where, you know, you're essentially franchisees, you know, you're sharing in the profit, you know, the, the, the building's built for you. And, you know, just what they've done for the restaurant community, you think about all of those, what would otherwise be general managers out there, 
that are now essentially entrepreneurs and the opportunity that's been given to those people, as well as, you know, how they just um, involve themselves in the community and, and, and how they give back, you know, so far and above beyond a lot of different restaurant companies out there. You know, the programs they have in place to be part of their communities, everything from baseball teams to schools to, you know, you name it, the local businesses, they're they're just the full package. And, you know, closed on Sundays creates a great work environment for their team members as well. So, so rare for us to have a day off in our space. And, you know, here they have a company that's been extremely successful with that. So, you know, I'd have to say they're they're truly a special brand from so many different perspectives, and you know what they've done for our restaurant community is is really exceptional. Um, but sorry, it's not a, a very original answer there. I, I, I yeah. like the answer. I like the sandwich and the fries. <laughs> it's an honest answer. It's what matters. So I get to go off restaurants for a little bit um, and just get more into Jim Bayless, the the person, but. Um, what about uh, the most interesting thing you've read, watched, or listened to lately? Yeah, there's been a bunch of those. I mean, I would have to say, you know, one thing I've been tracking sort of closely, unfortunately, I'm going to circle back to restaurants because, you know, it's it's what I'm about. Um, <laughs> but Tesla's, you know, Tesla's move into delivery is going to be very interesting. Uh, I'm sure you guys have read about it. You know, just analyzing the cost per mile of the current DSPs versus what they're able to do in, and this, you know, doesn't even include those, you know, they're, they're saying that um, if you own a Tesla, you, you will be able to opt into the, to their delivery company and say, you know, while I'm at home from six to eight, my car can exit my garage and go be a delivery car, um, an autonomous delivery car. And, um, you know, they're able to do it. I think, I think the DSPs are quoting something like between a buck 18 and a buck 30 something per mile, whereas, you know, Tesla somewhere around 25 cents. I think, you know, as you look at third party delivery being here to stay, you know, a lot of the, the economic model around, you know, what the way it exists today and whether or not it's sustainable because it's not that profitable, you know, Tesla's move into this space is, is extremely interesting. You know, they're so far, so far ahead of everybody else on autonomous driving and if they can layer in this component, it's going to be very interesting. And so, you know, I've been reading a lot about that. You know, my hobby, my hobby um, outside of the restaurants is, is quantum physics. I'm not going to bore you with some of the more interesting articles I've read on that lately. So I'll stick with the, uh, the Tesla and the autonomous driving and the self-delivery. And look, they're saying it's going to launch next year with, you know, somewhere upwards of 150,000 vehicles. So, you know, it could really hit the delivery service by model. I think they're starting in the UK. I don't remember where they're launching it initially, but it's going to be very interesting. And it'll be interesting to see how it impacts that, you know, that, that vertical that's that's going to be, you know, part of what we have to deal with going forward. It's, it's amazing when you consider how much delivery in itself and off-premise has changed over the last five years. And to think what Tesla will do when that occurs in, you know, less than six months, right? It'll just be revolutionary in that sense. And fortunately, yeah, you know, we can get our arms around that versus, you know, Jason wouldn't understand quantum physics from you know, hole in the wall. So. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I didn't fare well in calculus. <laughs> I did not. Uh, it, it might have had to do with some of the recreational activities going on in college, but that's all I'll say. Um, so, you know, this is actually an interesting question. It usually doesn't dovetail so much with the question before it, but I think it will in this case. If you could create a restaurant innovation out of thin air, uh, Jim, what would it be? That's a hard one. You know, 
I'm, I'm going to have to say it's not that innovative, but we are so far behind with respect to robotics that, you know, you look at manufacturing and how precise, I mean, we can manufacture, you know, microchips, you know, to, to such a degree of, of accuracy as well as you know, cars and, and just all kinds of other materials. The fact that the robotics in our space really have barely scratched the surface is, is unbelievable. You know, especially when you think of, you know, we're not talking about flipping burgers and things that may take, you know, a little bit more nuance or skill, but, you know, assembling products, um, you know, you know, even look at like, you know, yogurt, right? Somebody comes in or an ice cream um, or a smoothie, you know, or coffee can be so automated. And so, you know, for me, you know, it would probably be robotics. And then, you know, to circle back to the autonomous, you know, driving, I think, you know, look, uh, it's likely that, you know, in the future, again, you know, you're going to have a drone come up. It's going to identify you by your face. It's going to hand you your burrito. Uh, but in the meantime, I think some of these autonomous cars and delivery associated, you know, th- those are the two innovations I think would really help our space you know, just speaking more from a macro level, you know, there's a number of things I would like to see at, at a micro level that can help individual uh, businesses and our underlying operations. You know, pizza is something, you know, the, the dough, the sauce, the cheese uh, can be made by machines, portioned. You know, a, a lot of these processes can be automated. And I'd love to see more innovation around that. And I think it would add consistency for the consumer's benefit, uh, reduce some of our labor you know, re- reduce some of the safety issues. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of drama in our space. I don't know if I can say this on the podcast, but, you know, machines don't go and party with other machines and have babies. So um, I think it can add, you know, serve a lot of benefits across the board by automating some of these processes and, and removing people from the equation. Interesting. Record, you can definitely say that on this podcast, whether you yeah. should or not is a completely other Yeah, that's a, that's a completely, <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, you said not me, so we're good. There you go. Awesome. Well, Jim, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Jim Bayless, CEO of Sizzling Platter and operating partner at Capital Spring. Thanks so much for your time today. As I said earlier, I feel smarter every time I talk with you and really enjoy the conversation every time. It's a, it's a guarantee. I want to remind everybody to subscribe to our pod, please. Um, we're the, the uh, Perfect Ingredient Podcast. Um, you can contact us by email at perfectpod at perfect.tech. That's perfectpod, one word, at perfect.tech. And I want to thank, uh, in addition to uh, Jim Bayless and, of course, uh, my partner in crime, Anton Nicholas from ICR, I want to thank uh, the team at ThatCast and Michael Wolf at ICR for helping us behind the scenes get everything on this podcast down Uh, well, at least as well as we can and get it out to the world. Um, So again, Jim, thanks. Anton, thank you very much. And, uh, And that will wrap it up.